From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, scholars Elizabeth Mann from the Brookings Institute and Logan Casey from the Harvard Opinion Research Program join me to discuss discrimination the LGBTQ students face as the Department of Education enact rollbacks on their civil rights protection. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. America was formed on a radical idea of liberty and equality. This has proved historically to be a double-edged sword. Rather than relying on ethnic homogenization, America has instead placed this trust on the status quo as its citadel of inclusion, which over the centuries grudgingly allows admittance for some not originally conceived while still holding some hostage, labeling them as other. One of the unfortunate groups that still qualifies as other are K-12 students who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or questioning. Many remain invisible to the eye of the status quo as policies are enacted without consideration of their humanity. A recent decision handed down by the Department of Education will roll back civil rights protections for LGBTQ students that were put in place by the previous administration. How might these decisions affect K-12 LGBTQ students? Joining me to discuss this policy is Elizabeth Mann and Logan Casey. Mann is a fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., and Casey is a research associate at the Harvard Opinion Research Program located in Boston. Doctors Elizabeth Mann and Logan Casey, welcome to both of you to the public morality. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Happy to be here. Uh, Elizabeth, let's let's start with you and, um, and 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 Logan. Just go ahead and chime in, uh, please, as well. But I'll start with you, Elizabeth, on this. Um, could you give us some some background, starting with the decisions made by the Obama administration on this issue, and that take us into the present moment? Sure. Um, so I think that there are a couple of important points to keep in mind. So first of all, um, the Obama administration issued a number of different guidance documents uh, related to protecting the civil rights of uh, many different types of students. So transgender students um, among them, um, they also issued guidance on reducing racial disparities in school discipline um, in the K-12 context. And so Currently, what we're seeing, and this is not unique to the Department of Education, but I think it's particularly important, is that Secretary DeVos has been rolling back a number of the guidance documents and protocols that the Obama administration issued. Um, And they've also been, um, outside of just rolling back Obama-era decisions, they've also been uh, shaping how the Office of Civil Rights approaches uh, new complaints that they receive. Logan, is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, the uh, Obama-era guidance, I think one of the important things to keep in mind as we talk about 
uh, Trump administration and, and Betsy DeVos's, or Secretary DeVos's actions here is that the guidance issued by uh, the Obama administration, at least as far as we're talking about Title IX, was not something, this, this, these weren't guidance or protections for LGBT students in particular that uh, the Obama era, or the Obama administration created. These protections were created by the law itself, by Title IX, and the Obama era guidance was uh, something requested by schools across the country. They wanted clarification on how to interpret uh, and apply the existing law as it related to LGBT and particularly transgender students. And so um, one of the key things to keep in mind as we talk about here is that it's not that these protections were created by the Obama administration, but rather they were created by Title IX. And so irrespective of uh, Secretary DeVos's actions, these uh, protections for LGBT and particularly transgender students uh, still exist under Title IX. And w- something that I would just add to that framing as well that I think is important to keep in mind is that the Department of Education, again, this is not specific to this administration or any administration, one of the Department of Education's key roles and responsibilities is to enforce federal civil rights laws. Um, and so that's one reason why uh, it's notable and it's of concern when you see the Department of Education currently under Secretary DeVos taking steps to actually walk back some of that uh, role in enforcing federal civil rights laws. Um, uh, and Kate, and uh, Logan, I'll start with you on this. Uh, sure. The, the piece of the, that I read yesterday um, on the booking site cited the Washington Post article that the Office of Civil Rights uh, was, will no longer accept complaints for transgender students not being able to use the bathroom that conforms with their right. gender identity. As, right. as, you, as you well know here, and uh, we're broadcasting from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that was a particular issue for well over a year here in North right. Carolina. But could you explain why that particular rollback is significant? Oh. Yes. Um, so that particular rollback is significant. I mean, one, the use of bathrooms as a, a, a sort of tactic or focal point for these uh, protections, um, I'm sorry, for this conversation is significant because, one, it's specifically targeting certain students, right? This is specifically uh, targeting transgender students and, and gender nonconforming students. And so there's a disproportionate burden and harm that is placed on these students. And so just on a practical everyday level, there are students that are being singled out by the Department of Education. And so that itself is something that's concerning. Um, But also as part of a a larger issue, it's concerning and it uh, goes against the law under Title IX because uh, Title IX prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in uh, education or education facilities that receive uh, government funding. And numerous courts throughout the country, as well as uh, various federal agencies, including the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Department of Health and Human Services and many others, have found that uh, discrimination on the basis of sex includes discrimination on the basis of gender identity. Or in other words, when you discriminate against a transgender person because they're transgender, uh, you're also, by definition, discriminating on the basis of sex. And so that is against the law under Title IX and various other uh, statutes. And so uh, it's a particular a particular concern because it goes contrary to what Title IX protections mandate. Hmm. Elizabeth, anything you'd like to add? 
Sure. Yeah. One thing I would just add is that is to connect connect a couple dots here. So um, one, so the department said that the Office of Civil Rights, as you mentioned, is not going to accept complaints about transgender students who can't use the bathroom that conforms with their gender identity. Um, they also more recently, uh, the department issued a protocol saying they will also not accept complaints from individuals who have filed multiple complaints, um, citing concerns about efficiency and, uh, and the Office for Civil Rights capacity to hear these complaints. So, uh, you know, they began by saying we're not going to accept uh, complaints from transgender students about bathroom use. They then actually broadened that to say we're not going to accept complaints or, you know, from people who have filed more than one complaint, uh, even if those complaints might be legitimate. And so to me, uh, that's kind of a broader pattern. And a number of advocates I know have raised concerns about, um, you know, what they see as kind of selective enforcement and selective decision making about which, com which complaints to hear and which not complaints to hear, which complaints not to hear from the Office for Civil Rights. And so that's also uh, that's an issue that I think is important to pay attention to. Now, now uh, Elizabeth, I'll stay with you on this next question. Um, Normally, uh, the overwhelming majority uh, of, of the individuals that work in the Department of Education or any, or any department in, in, in the federal government are, are, are not government appointees. So do you see these changes specifically reflecting the ideology at the uh, philosophy at the top? In this case, it would be Secretary DeVos. That's a good question. So, uh, of course... I don't work for the department, so from my perspective, uh, you know, on the outside, it certainly seems as though these decisions are coming from the top down. So these are coming from, um, you know, Secretary DeVos and those that she uh, has chosen to work with, has appointed to work with. Um, so I think that in that sense, and again, this is, you know, this is one of the prerogatives of winning the presidency is you get to appoint uh, leaders of these powerful offices and departments who share your ideology and who then work on pursuing your policy agenda. Um, and so, so I think, you know, that's important to keep in mind. And in that respect, you know, Secretary DeVos is, you know, kind of exercising um, that authority to pursue uh, their agenda kind of as they've defined it. Hmm. Okay, uh, Logan? Can I just add something here? Yeah, please jump in. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that we've seen Secretary DeVos do many times, especially in her congressional testimony, when asked about the extent to which or for whom she'll enforce civil rights protections, she'll often defer to states and say, you know, states should be the ones making decisions for what's best for them and their schools. And I think what that, that angle that she takes and also the conversation we're having right now really highlight is why it's so important for civil rights to be enforced at a federal level by the Department of Education because when you defer or delegate that authority to enforce civil rights kind of selectively to the states, you're, you're giving more leeway to individual actors on the ground to selectively enforce these rights and protect these students. And so then you end up, even though you have Title IX that says nationally, this is the law, these are transgender students and LGBT students should be protected in these very specific ways, uh, when you defer to the states in this way that, that Secretary DeVos often invokes and suggests, it gives state actors the ability to decide whether or not they want to do that on their own. 
And so then in some states, you have really great LGBT protections uh, in practice, and then in other states, you don't. And so that's not ensuring the fair and equal access to education that the Department of Education states is its mission. And and one thing that I would add to that, you know, and to be clear, um, the Secretary of Education does not have the authority to decide which federal laws they would like to enforce and which they would not like to enforce. And so, you know, that to me doesn't fall within the purview of Secretary DeVos. Um, but, you know, things like making decisions about, and, and I think that's why it's important that we pay attention to these decisions about and the framing about, you know, new protocols that are being introduced and rescinding um, past guidance, because if those decisions, you know, are have an impact on kind of how federal law is being enforced, then, uh, you know, then that's a problem. Uh, Logan, walk us through, if you would, how when you read about these uh, rollbacks by the Department of Education, um, to the best of your ability, talk about the impact this has on the LGBTQ student or could have potentially. Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Um, I mean, I think... It's important to understand, especially in this context, I mean, we can talk about how the actions of the Trump administration affect the LGBTQ community broadly, but in the particular case of the Department of Education, we have to keep in mind, especially that we're often talking about the impact on children. And I think that's a really important distinction for us, that these are, uh, you know, often K-12, um, and the K-12 children, and they have just a different capacity, like the experiences of discrimination and harassment and bullying and the, in, the negative impacts of seeing on a national level, leaders talk about not protecting your rights or not even being willing to hear complaints about violations of your rights has a different effect on youth than it does on adults who have had more time to build resiliency and a stronger sense of self. And it's something we see with youth all, all, all uh, irrespective of uh, sexuality or gender identities. Um, all all youth have, uh, by by definition of being younger, have a different relationship to resiliency and vulnerability, and and um, so we know that there's a disproportionate impact in terms of harm when you're talking about youth versus adults. And so I think it's um, that's one of the big takeaways for me is that not only uh, is the department uh, refusing to do its job in terms of enforcing civil rights dictated by the law, uh, but it's also having this harm directly on children. Uh, so that's that's really something important to keep in mind. Elizabeth? Sure. The only thing I would add there is, you know, the bottom line here, the data that we discussed in this blog post shows that LGBT students face discrimination at school. That's true in the K-12 context. That's true in the higher education context. Um, the data that we discuss is not an anomaly, you know, so we mention um, results from a 2015 National School Climate uh, Study run by GLSEN, and they find, uh, quote, a hostile school climate for LGBTQ students. And so I think in all of this conversation about administration policy and the role of the Department of Education, it's really important to keep in mind that discrimination against LGBTQ students happens in schools. And, um, you know, the people who are perpetrating that discrimination need to be held accountable. And that's a role that the Department of Education 
historically is charged with filling and is currently charged with filling. Um, and so that's why it's important for us to, you know, ask questions about the department's decision making when it looks like they are walking back away from that authority, even while we know this discrimination against students is occurring. Well, uh, you, you mentioned the the um, Glisten uh, report that you cited in, in, in your piece yesterday. I happen to have those, some of those numbers in front of me right now. And 57.6% um, of LGBTQ students feel felt unsafe at school because of their sexual orientation and 43% because of gender expression. Uh, to me, this is the really staggering number, and this sort of goes to your point, um, Logan, that 71.5% uh, and 65.7% respectively feel unsafe participating in extracurricular activities. I mean, that's that sort of goes hand in hand with just being a high school student, right? Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, and I should say that the uh, the poll that we did, so I'm, I work at uh, Harvard University in the School of Public Health, and the poll that we did was of LGBTQ adults. And so our, um, our survey results speak to perceptions of discrimination in the local school district, as well as um, their own personal experiences with discrimination in a college setting. Um, so the Harvard survey speaks to adult findings and adult experiences of discrimination. But yeah, the Glisten survey that, that Elizabeth mentioned and that you're referencing is a survey actually of LGBT youth in K-12. K um, and it is shocking, the numbers in that report, uh, they're just extremely high, and they're also consistent with what we find in our adult survey that we, for the LGBTQ adults, we found uh, not asking just about school, but asking about, you know, have you ever been subject to slurs based on your sexual orientation or offensive comments or negative assumptions or threats or sexual harassment or violence? Um, and we find that a majority of LGBTQ people in our survey said that they'd experienced all of those things. 57% of LGBTQ adults say that they have experienced slurs because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. 57% uh, also say that they've experienced threats or harassment. And a majority also say they've experienced violence because of their LGBTQ identity. And so, you know, what we're seeing here across these different polls and surveys and uh, representations of the LGBTQ experience in America is that violence and harassment are an everyday part of life. And that's extremely distressing, particularly when we're talking. I mean, it's distressing no matter who we're talking about, but particularly when we're talking about youth, and particularly when you combine that with what we know to be true about racial disparities in uh, punishment at schools, as Elizabeth mentioned earlier. That's another one of the programs or policies that the Department of Education is considering rescinding, um, trying to dismantle those those racial disparities. Um, so, yeah, I mean, exactly what you said that. These experiences are, you know, extracurriculars, for example, are part and parcel of being in high school. Um, but for LGBTQ students, so is violence and harassment. Mm. And, 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 I, and just think about that for a moment. Isn't that one of the things that a number of schools, uh, I'm talking about colleges and universities, look at? Did you not just your grade, your GPA, and your test scores, but did you participate in extracurricular stuff? What else did you do? And, and there's this sort of built-in wall of, of, of violence and uh, that may prohibit some students from not doing those things. That's right. Uh, so having these experiences at a young age disproportionately affects all kinds of outcomes, including mental and physical health outcomes, 
um, both in terms of, well, yeah, as we've discussed, um, as well as academic outcomes, and then that results in economic outcomes as well. If you aren't, you know, if you're choosing not to go to school out of fear of bullying and harassment, you're losing out on education, and that can, if, if you're not participating in extracurriculars, that can affect your college applications, uh, and then your college education or lack thereof, because you might experience the same sort of things when you get to college, uh, that can affect your economic situation in the future, and that leads into what we also know is true about LGBTQ community, which is that uh, contrary to a lot of stereotypes and what you might expect, the LGBTQ community is actually much more likely to be in poverty than the general population. And so these experiences of bullying, harassment, starting as young as uh, you know elementary school and middle school that we can see in the Glisson Report uh, carry through and have dramatic implications for the rest of people's lives. And we've already talked about some of the things that go on with um, potentially with LGBTQ students. So, so the cyber, yeah, the cyber bullying. But you, you could also argue that cyber bullying happens with the larger population. But these things happen, and then we also know that this is just another layer. These rollbacks are another layer because we know that teen suicide is higher among LGBTQ students. So how do we negotiate all of this? The report, the rollbacks, the reality. Uh, whoever wants to take that and go, feel free. Sure. So. So I'll offer kind of a, a, a broad comment here. So I think that, to me, the rollback that we've discussed, so rescinding the Title IX Obama-era guidance, the Department of Education saying that their Office for Civil Rights will not accept complaints from transgender students about bathroom use in public schools. You know, on the one hand, you could look at those decisions and say, look, uh, this is only affecting transgender students, that's a very small portion of the population. Um, and so there's not a lot of reason to be concerned that this is going to have a lot of downstream negative effects. But to that argument, I would say two things. One, um, the Office for Civil Rights exists to protect the civil rights of students. And as Logan has discussed, uh, that includes enforcing Title IX. So even if this did only affect a small portion of students, those students matter, and uh, you know the Department of Education is charged with protecting their civil rights. I would also say to that that you know in light of this conversation and uh, you know what Logan just discussed about all of the negative uh, life outcomes associated with being bullied and bullied and harassed uh, in school among LGBT students, you know the department is not sending a signal that they are are standing up for LGBT students' rights. So, you know, Logan mentioned the congressional testimony from Secretary DeVos. So in her, combined with her congressional testimony where she's saying, look, it's up, you know, I will enforce federal law and at the same time, you know, states are the ones who are, you know, responsible for a lot of this, um, not coming out right saying that she, uh, you know, will uh, protect LGBT students from discrimination, um, combined with the moves that we've talked about, kind of rescinding this guidance with respect to transgender students. I, you know, my instinct would be that that sends an overall student uh, signal, not just to the transgender community, but more broadly to LGBT students and individuals that this department um, is, is not, you know, actively enforcing 
the federal civil rights laws that would, you know, that are designed to protect them and are designed to be there so that they have um, a neutral arbiter where they can file a complaint if they believe that their civil rights are being violated in an education context. And so I think that the policies, while they may be specific in nature, I worry that the overall effect will be to send a broader signal about the level of interest and commitment that the Department of Education has to protecting civil rights for LGBT students. You know, specific, uh, Lo, I mean, I'll come back to you, Logan, because um, I want to touch on something that you, you, you referenced earlier. Uh, it, 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 when, I hear, when I hear this conversation and, and, and the responses from both of you, what I'm hearing also is also maybe a, a 14th Amendment argument, equal protection, because I'm hearing that it's almost happenstance to what kind of protections you get uh, based on where you live as an LGBTQ student rather than this should be across the board. And so wouldn't this be the primary role for the federal government to, to, to have a say and an influence? Yeah, uh, so I I can't speak a hundred percent to the uh, the constitutionality uh, aspect. Um, I personally think that you're right. Fourteenth uh, Amendment argument certainly would apply here. Um, in in my non not being a lawyer <laughs> opinion, um, <laughs> but uh, I think yeah, this is what I was referring to earlier when I was trying to say that. This is exactly why it's so important that these rights are enforced at a federal level, because otherwise uh, students will have such a different experience depending on where they happen to live. And we already know that that's true in terms of school funding and all the kind of racial disparities that that creates and the income disparities that that creates. Um, so having that inconsistent experience across different school districts and across different states is not, that's not how we create good educational outcomes for anybody including LGBT students, but not, not limited to them. Um, and this is also part of the broader uh, experience of LGBTQ politics generally, is that the federal government has generally been very slow to act uh, in a way that protects LGBT rights um, across almost every issue. And so policy regarding LGBTQ people's lives, whether it's at work or in schools, in housing and public accommodations, all kinds of different areas uh, is dramatically dependent upon where you happen to live. And so, yeah, that absolutely highlights why it's important for the federal government to be a leader on these issues. Elizabeth, anything to add? Um, no, I, I agree, you know, with Logan's interpretation there, and I don't, you know, I don't think I have anything uh, sure. additional on that point. Okay. Uh, is in the work that you all did, uh, is it impacted by region? Is, is, is the southern region of the country different from the northern region? Is that different from the west? So, so on and so forth. So one of the things about uh, doing survey work about LGBT people's, their own experience and their own opinions, because uh, so much of what we read in, the, in polls is about what non-LGBTQ people think about LGBTQ issues or LGBTQ <laughs> people, um, so what we were trying to do with this survey is actually speak to LGBTQ people directly. And actually, I should say that this survey is not just of LGBTQ people. It was a national representative survey of uh, nearly 3,500 Americans um, and uh, with nationally representative samples 
of each African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and LGBTQ people. And so there's uh, separate reports about experiences of discrimination among all of those groups. Um, but as far as the LGBTQ, it, what we're trying to do with the whole survey was speak directly to people about their own experiences with racial discrimination, with gender discrimination, with anti-LGBTQ discrimination. And um, when we get here to the LGBTQ sample, uh, LGBTQ population is generally a little more difficult to survey, one, because it's a smaller population in general, in the uh, broader populace, it's estimated somewhere around three to four percent of the population is LGBTQ identified. Um, and so it's difficult to get a large enough sample to do a lot of different demographic splits like that. And so you were asking about region. Um, so we do have a nationally representative sample here, but unfortunately not enough to really get you a lot of detail about these different variations with a lot of uh, reliability. But one, one finding that did come out uh, is that LGBTQ people living in the South are significantly more likely than LGBTQ people living anywhere else in the country to say that they think um, LGBT people in their area are often discriminated against at college. So that's, you know, not... Um, that doesn't get us very deep into the conversation about regional variation. Uh, and we also know that um, LGBTQ people of color are, there's a lot more LGBTQ people of color in the South than necessarily in other parts of the country. And so that might also be a partially racially driven finding, depending on, um, you know, data that we, like I said, the, the sample size is not quite large enough for us to get as deep as we'd like. Um, but we do see that LGBTQ people living in the South have uh, a higher per, uh, a perception that discrimination happens more frequently in that area in the context of college. So, so Elizabeth, in, in your view, uh, is, this, uh, is this a matter of benign neglect? Is it ignorance? Is, is, it, um, is it deliberate pernicious? I mean, how, um, what do you think? I mean, I'm asking you to speculate, but, but what do you think are some of the motivations here? For the roll for the rollbacks, I'm sorry. Sure. So, so to me, this rollback in examining and accepting certain types of civil rights complaints from students fits in with the broader theme, you know, of the uh, Department of Education's actions and the Trump administration more generally of decreasing the federal footprint uh, in government. And so I, I don't think that this is pernicious. Um, you know, I haven't seen any evidence that would suggest that that is the case, but I do think that, you know, this is coming out of the philosophy of um, the federal government should play a smaller role in a number of ways. And what we've been discussing today is this view that the federal government should in fact play a smaller role in enforcing federal civil rights law. Um, so it, of course, can be the case that while no harm to a particular group is intended through that kind of decision, that could, in fact, be the outcome. If the people who rely on the federal government, uh, you know, to protect those civil rights are, you know, these LGBT students or racial and ethnic minorities mm -hmm. um, or students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Logan, any other, you have any thoughts there? Uh, no, I think Elizabeth made the right point that, um, and this is one of the difficulties in terms of advocating uh, for 
various policies that are pro-LGBT or working against rescinding these policies is that a lot of times on face value, these uh, the philosophies driving these decisions don't appear to have, you know, don't appear to be motivated by animus. They appear to be, you know, driven by a belief in a smaller role of government. But the thing about the Department of Education is that it's literally the Department of Education's job to enforce civil rights protections. And so, you know, understanding the, that this might be coming from a benign philosophy, but it's contrary to the actual mission and, and job of the department itself. You know, one of the things I, I say about uh, intent, I think sometimes intent is overrated. If I'm, if I'm standing on your neck, you don't care if I'm trying to hurt you or not. You just want me to move my foot. And I think that, um, and that's, that's what we're saying here. Um, I want to hear from both of you on, on, this, on this question. Um, and, and Logan, I'll start with you. Explain why, even though we're talking about uh, a, a sample size of the large LGBTQ community is, what you say, 3 to 4 percent. Talk to me why this issue goes beyond the LGBTQ community and why we all should be concerned about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Well, for one, one thing is that, um, you know, the application or, or extension of civil rights should not depend upon how many people there are like you. Right? Like it shouldn't matter if there's 3% or 1% or 0.0001%, right? Like you're still a person, you still have civil rights. Uh, and so if we're making arguments about who deserves protections based on the size of whatever group you're in, that's uh, not, not a good way for us to think about protecting the rights and, and promoting equal education for all, which is the Department of Education's mission statement. Um, strengthening the federal commitment to assuring access to equal educational opportunity for every individual. And so everybody means everybody. Um, so it should be uh, of concern to everyone, not just LGBTQ people, but of folks outside of that group because of the broader principle about applying civil rights equally and making sure that everyone has an equal access to education in this country. Elizabeth? And also, oh, as Elizabeth said, sorry, <laughs> no, and mm -hmm. also, as Elizabeth said, that, you know, the idea that the department will selectively enforce for one group might make it, it makes it more plausible to believe that they might also selectively enforce when it comes to other groups, especially minority groups. Okay, Elizabeth? Sure. So I think to add to Logan's point, um, what I would say is that, you know, kind of as I've mentioned, the department's decisions, you know, rolling back kind of their enforcement of these federal civil rights laws, um, you know, we have indications that this this doesn't just affect the LGBTQ community. And I completely agree with Logan, even if this only affected a very small percentage of students, uh, that would still be a problem. But, you know, so the department currently is considering rescinding Obama-era guidance on reducing uh, racial disparities in school discipline. So that's already evidence that, uh, you know, this this approach may also affect racial and ethnic minorities. There have also been concerns raised by advocates for students with disabilities. So keep in mind that the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, as well as the, uh, sorry, I'm losing my So the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, as well as IDEA, which is the federal law protecting students with disabilities in the context of education, 
the Department of Education is also responsible with enforcing those civil rights laws. And so, you know, there are concerns among advocates who represent students with disabilities that this approach that the department is taking to enforcing uh, and listening to and responding to civil rights complaints may also affect students with disabilities, which, of course, transcends, you know, any other kind of group, uh, you know. Um, and so I think that there is, there is a lot of, there's a lot of evidence actually that this kind of approach is not just narrowly going to affect uh, transgender students or LGBTQ students, but you know may also have implications for a much broader array of students, including students with disabilities as well as racial and ethnic minorities. Doctors Elizabeth Mann and Logan Casey, I want to thank both of you for joining me today on The Public Morality. Thank you so much. That was Elizabeth Mann and Logan Casey. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. I know we just did a show recently on the First Amendment, but it seems this notion of free speech continues to be a nagging thorn in our constitutional side. Immediately following the passing of former First Lady Barbara Bush, California State University at Fresno English professor Rhonda Girard wrote on Twitter, quote, Barbara Bush was a generous and smart and amazing racist who, along with her husband, raised a war criminal. It was reported that University President Joseph Castro called Gerard's comments disrespectful and said they went beyond free speech. When I heard Castro's comments, I wondered, is it possible to go beyond free speech? And the short answer is yes, it is possible as Oliver Wendell Holmes noted one cannot yell falsely that there's a fire in a crowded theater. Contrary to urban myth, hate speech, however defined, does enjoy some constitutional protections. The most glaring example of this would be Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. Clarence Brandenburg, a Ku Klux Klan leader in Ohio, gave a speech that made reference to the possibility of, quote, revengeance to blacks and Jews and those who supported them. This was in violation of Ohio law that prohibited the advocacy of violence. The Supreme Court in an 8-0 decision ruled that government could not punish inflammatory speech unless that speech is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. Therefore, Hate speech in the abstract has protections. Moreover, how one feels about the speech is irrelevant. Feelings are to speech what the spotted owl is to the microchip. But Gerard is a public employee. Does that make a difference? Suppose a tenured philosophy professor at the mythical state school known as Obadiah Tech tweeted, quote, Adolf Hitler was an amazing racist who was a war criminal. Would that be permissible? 
Would the provost suggest, quote, while this professor has attained tenure, it does not provide a blanket protection to say what one wishes, that this speech actually goes beyond free speech? The primary difference between my hypothetical example and Gerard's speech is the subject. For myriad reasons, we're probably less inclined to be offended by the professor at Obadiah Tech. Though it's tempting to debate free speech in the substance of the micro, it must be adjudicated conceptually in the macro. Protection of the First Amendment requires that it is the speech that we oppose that provides the litmus test for our adherence to free expression. Otherwise, we're merely giving lip service to the notion of free speech, preferring an obsequious relationship to only the speech that meets with our approval, and that is not the path that leads to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. 